You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Morning Startup, where we believe you can develop neural pathways that will awaken you to a full heart and clear mind. Live with joy, health, and success. I'm your host, Michael Oliver, and I'm joined by my co-host, Deborah Dyack and Maria Gosher. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. We are so happy to have Sharon Salzberg with us. We've been anticipating waiting for this, and so we are super excited. And thank you for joining us. You have such a busy schedule, so we're really fortunate to— And honored. And, and honored <laughs> to have you joining us, so— Super excited. I just like to say that we just you just came off of your October 10-day loving kindness challenge. Um, and that is also recorded. I know you can get all all those 10 days you can get through YouTube, I believe. Um, so if you haven't had an opportunity to look at that for our listeners, that would be awesome to, to check out. Uh, you also have a meta meta hour podcast that you that you have, that show, and that's also available through your website, SharonSaltzberg.com. Um, so to kind of just jumpstart us off and, and help us listeners get to know you a little better, can you walk us through a little bit of your journey and really how you got to where you are today? You know, best-selling author, 11 books, um, and all the activities that you do, um, your journey to that point would be interesting as well. And I just want to say why we think this is so critical is because very often people, experts in mindfulness, meditation, loving kindness, and breathing – do not have backgrounds that people don't feel connected. Well, someone who has an education, of course they can do it. I can't do it. Um, you haven't been through what I've been through. But you're a very authentic person, and, and sharing your life, we appreciate it, your journey. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, really. Um well, it's been a while, so it's a lot to talk about. As my friends say, my young friends, oh, you were meditating before it was cool. <laughs> you know, so, um, I grew up in New York City. I went to college when I was 16, being a product of New York City public schools, which like to have people skip grades. And um, when I was a sophomore, I took an Asian philosophy course, which honestly, looking back, as far as I could tell, it's kind of happenstance, you know. Mm -hmm. I, there was a philosophy requirement. I needed to do something. I looked at the schedule. I thought, oh, that's convenient. Let me do that one. It fits in. Uh, and the course totally changed my life. So um, when we got to the section on uh, Buddhism and they talked about the Buddha saying that life has suffering mm -hmm. and uh, I, like many people, had had a very traumatic childhood with lots of loss and lots of change. And like for many people, mine was a family system where this was never spoken about. And so hearing that statement of the Buddhas, it was like the first time in my life. The the subtext for me was, you belong. You're not so weird, you know. <laughs> right. You're not so different. Everyone mm -hmm. goes through some degree or another Absolutely. of of these feelings. And, and that was a huge turning point for me. And then in the context of the class, I heard that there were tools, there were actual methods that people could use, very practical, very direct. They're called meditation. 
And if you use them, you could be a lot happier. So I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked, this is 1970. I looked around Buffalo. I didn't see it anywhere. <laughs> and I think about that moment so often mm-hmm. because I could have easily, I mean, there would have been nothing easier than to say, I think I'll, you know, pursue this in graduate school or, right, you know, right. like I'll, I'll figure this out. I'll read some more about it. Or isn't that interesting? That, that might be nice someday, but it was nothing like that. I just, I was like on fire. I thought I have to learn how to do this. So the university had an independent study program. I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and learn how to meditate. <laughs> and they said, yes. So off I went in 1970. And I, wow. Uh, I wanted something really practical. I wasn't interested in becoming a Buddhist. I wasn't interested in philosophy or comparative religion or rejecting anything else. I just wanted to learn the how-to. And it took a little bit of time in India to find just that kind of circumstance, and I did find it. Uh, And so I began meditating uh, January 7th, 1971. And, And that was really the beginning. I frankly, stayed a little longer than my year, <laughs> my allotted year. <laughs> I went back to Buffalo, did what I needed to do to get two years of independent study credit. So I finished school, uh, went back to India and came back to the States in 1974. Um, and I came back essentially as a teacher because one of my own teachers, this woman named Deepama had told me to teach. And so uh, when I came back, some friends, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and I, Oh yes. uh, began teaching together a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And then in 1976, we established a retreat center, the Insight Meditation Society, mm-hmm. which is right next door to me in Massachusetts. And um, that was it. You know, that yeah. was, that was really the beginning. And so since that time, uh, obviously meditation has grown in popularity mm-hmm. and, and an understanding, like in those days, say 74, 75, uh, and for years, some years after that, if I'd be at a party or some social situation, and people would say, what do you do? <laughs> and I'd say, I teach meditation. They would kind of go, oh, that's like weird. And, right, yeah. You know, uh, now, the well, now we don't have parties, but, you know, pre-pandemic, uh, the common response, if I said I was a meditation teacher, would be, I'm so stressed out, I mm-hmm. could use some of that. And so there's been a lot more research and science and, and really, I think, a greater understanding that it's truly not like joining a belief system. Mm-hmm. It's really about the power of your own mind. And uh, so, you know, we've seen the growth from, you know, a very – uh, kind of narrow band of people being interested in in learning how to do it to just this movement, which is really startling. Well, you know? I know ex- I experienced that at my college when I tried to bring meditation. I was told, mm-hmm. don't use that word, say self-reflection, use reflection. And, uh, and now it's become obviously realized that it's research-based and it's all of its uh, benefits are realized so and you know Sharon what I would I think for a lot of our listeners here and and people that I come across when they when I speak about talking about meditation or my own experience with it 
I, and I know you've heard this, so I want you to kind of speak to it. I think it would help people is they'll say, well, oh, I can't do that. You know, oh, I, I can't, I can't even sit still. And my, and so they don't even want to attempt that because they feel like it's something that they wouldn't be able to accomplish. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to that first impression that people have of meditation. Um, and, what words would you say to say, listen, give it an opportunity to just sit and, and, um, because that's what I hear. Like, oh my God, I sit down and my mind's rushing five. I can't, I can't get to that place of, you know, ohm being real quiet, you know, and they kind of like have a little bit misinterpretation of it. Yeah. So could you share with when you, I know that you have your students or people starting out in meditation have said that to you. What's your response to them? Yeah, that is a very common, um, Comment and often people phrase it as I tried that once I failed at it. Yes. You know, and we believe you cannot fail at it. You can't have the wrong experience. You can have a challenging experience, Mm -hmm. but it's never wrong because our goal is not to wipe out thinking. Yes. Or to have a totally blank mind. It's to change our relationship to everything, to emotions, to thoughts, to physical sensations, so that we're empowered and, and we, you know, like those moments when, like, you're kind of angry and you don't even realize you're angry and you go off to the computer and you type out the email and you press send. And then two hours later, you go, whoops, you know, like, <laughs> I guess I said that with some hostility, you know, like, you know, there's right. something important in knowing what we feel as we're feeling it, mm-hmm. not later after we've taken action and knowing what we're thinking as we're thinking it, because then we have a choice. Mm-hmm. Do I want to take this to heart? Do I want to cultivate this? Maybe this is best let go of, you know, mm-hmm. that nasty thought, for example, that I'm incapable of ever doing anything right. That might, is probably worth letting go of, you know. <laughs> it's just an old habit. And so we learn so much about ourselves and what makes us happy and what doesn't, even even if we've been told our whole lives, you know, that, oh, this is the direction to go in when we actually – take a direct look you go like whoops i don't think so you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that's part of the loving kindness that you share with people is digging through the stories of who we think we are i thought that concept was fascinating um, to get down to that we are perfect as as we are like a lot of people say i can't do this i can't do that would you share a little bit about that kindness to ourselves yeah Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we can call it loving kindness, we can call it self-compassion, which is, you know, kind of the current Western psychological term is is like this hidden ingredient in a lot of accomplishment. You know, we tend to think that being kind to ourselves or, you know, we've blown it, we've made a mistake, having some compassion for ourselves is like laziness, you know, it's losing standards of excellence or something like that, but... Uh, I'm told, I'm not a scientist, but I'm told that research shows that um, any kind of performance test one might go through as part of research uh, in a harsh, punitive environment, internal or external, our performance will spike, but briefly, then we'll crash. Hmm. And that the most effective way to actually make a change, to develop a new habit, to learn something new, to make progress in anything is self-compassion. You know, you blew it. You realize that 
you maybe lessons learned. It's not like you ignore it, you know, like what happened, but maybe there are things to have learned. And then you go on. You don't just kind of stay there. Like I'm so terrible. I'm the worst meditator that ever lived. I can't believe my mind wandered. You know, (laughs) you tell these stories or we use these images, but people do that. And then, you know, like you emerge from a period like that. And not only have you extended the period of the distraction, sometimes considerably, but you're so tired, (laughs) you know, we're so exhausted and and demoralized. It's like, we don't have any resilience. Mm -hmm. if We're just on ourselves all the time. And so again, it's something very practical. Like, let's take a look, you know, this idea of, of self-compassion, which sounds so, yeah, you know, like too soft, you know, right. When you actually take a look, you think, oh, look at that. That's how I was able to actually carry out that project. That's how I was able to not be so discouraged because I made that mistake. Can you discuss the critical importance of breath um, for people who, um, many in the West, who we just take it for granted that we breathe, but we don't understand the gift of breath and how it helps us to meditate and take control of our lives? Sure. Um, uh, I have a friend, Linda Stone. We, we She's known as a thought leader. I don't even know what that is, but she's a thought leader. <laughs> I like and we it. became friends because I was quoting I need, her. I need a thought leader. <laughs> um, I was quoting her. She, she had some great line about um, our time. And how we um, we have continuous partial attention. Oh. You know, we're always kind of divided and we're paying mm-hmm. attention to 15 things at once and stuff. Yep. So um, we got in touch, you know, over over my quoting her. And, uh, and then she came up with another one that was really interesting. Like, I think it was, I was, I had written a book and a journalist, um, asked me, uh, what do you think about email apnea? So I said, what's email apnea? <laughs> and she said, oh, this woman, Linda Stone, who's now my friend, uh, by that time, she said, Linda Stone came up with this phrase that sometimes we're paying attention or, or we're so concentrated but in the wrong way, mm-hmm. too much tension, mm-hmm. you know, too much stress that we actually stop breathing. Yes. And it has some of those physiological and emotional consequences that sleep apnea has. So I thought that was fascinating. And, um, and it's also true, of course, that if we're caught in a fight, flight, or freeze in in a real kind of primordial stress reaction, you know, very physiologically determined, we stop breathing or we stop breathing fully. And so, uh, there's a lot to be said for just paying attention to how we're breathing. Now, we often use the breath as what we would call a foundational object in meditation, where uh, in the beginning of many schools of meditation, what you do is you choose an object of awareness, you settle your attention on that object, and then when your mind wanders, you practice letting go and coming back. So that's sort of like an essential learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, settling our attention on that object, which could be anything. could be the breath, could be loving kindness, could be a prayer, could be a mantra, could be an image, you know, but we have an object of awareness. 
the operative word is rest. We rest our attention on that object. Sometimes, not uncommonly, people feel if I grab hold of it really tight, <laughs> you know, I'll get more concentrated and actually your mind will wander more. So we learn to rest, which is a really interesting tool for our time. Mm-hmm. And then our minds will wander. So we practice letting go, letting go gently, no blame, you know, no judgment. And we practice self-compassion in that moment. We let go and we start over. And that's why meditation is sometimes called a resilience tool because we learn how to do that. So that object, that central object could be anything. And very commonly it is the feeling of the breath. Uh, It doesn't have to be, or it doesn't have to only be, but, Many teachers will say, well, at least let's have part of your practice be the breath. First of all, you get used to breathing, (laughs) which (laughs) comes in handy. And also, as uh, my early teachers would say, the breath um, is universal. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you could be meditating. And as one teacher said, I always felt very charmingly. He said the breath is very portable, Mm. you know, so that let's say you have a formal meditation practice of seven to 12 minutes a day. We can talk later about why I say that. (laughs) Um, We do sit down and you're, or you lie down, you know, if sitting is uncomfortable and there are lots of options for posture, but it's a dedicated period where you think, okay, now I'm going to, cultivate greater awareness and compassion and so on. And you use something like the feeling of the breath to come back to yourself, to come back to the moment. Then you're at work or you're commuting or you're in some crazy busy scene and there's pressure and chaos and you're starting to get anxious. You can breathe. You don't need equipment. You don't need to like open up the closet door and pull something out. You don't need to sit down cross-legged and close your eyes and look weird. (laughs) You know, nobody even has to know you're doing it. Yeah. So you have a completely portable resource. Um, And so that's why the breath is so often chosen. Mm -hmm. Now, for some people, the breath doesn't quite work. There's, you know, physical issue or an emotional issue. Mm -hmm. Um, So then we say, you know, see if you can choose something else happening in your body, like your hands touching. You know, something that is easy to access so that when you are in a more complex environment, you can use something like that. Mm -hmm. And then when we come back to ourselves in that moment, say at work, we also come back to what we care about. We remember our values. You know, it's not a small thing to to kind of recenter in that way. And it's right there. Mm Sharon, I, I want to go back to a couple of things. This is really fascinating. I'm really glad that you're touching on these because I think our traditional understanding of meditation um, is that you need to find some place and you need 20 minutes. It's 20 minutes and you're going to sit for 20 minutes. And so I just heard you say 7 to 12. I also heard you say you could do this at work. Um, you could do it at certain times when your lo- stress levels really go high. So I'm hearing some myths, and, and I don't know if it's a myth. I mean, but I'm wondering about that 20-minute um, piece that has always been attached to meditation. So if you could speak to that, because it sounds like you don't. if you don't have 20 minutes, you could 
do less and still get a benefit? And then share the seven to 12 if you could. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, you could say we divide meditation into the formal practice that we're going to do, let's say every day. And then what one uh, Tibetan Lama I heard once described high up in the, in the Himalayas, <laughs> you call short moments many times. You know, oh. that's like drinking your cup of tea and not multitasking at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, feeling the warmth of the teacup, smelling the tea, tasting the tea. Um, maybe the most famous of that is this recommendation from the um, Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh who said, um, don't pick up your phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. Oh. And then you pick it up. Oh. So it's just introducing these moments, you know, mm-hmm. like a little mini pause where you can come back to yourself during the day. And I once went into a finance firm in, <laughs> in New York and I said that about let your phone ring three times. And I looked up and I saw the complete panic on everyone's face. <laughs> I said, okay, maybe if you just twice, you know, let it ring twice, you know, but it's nothing long that's going to undo your to-do list, but just this little sprinkling mm-hmm. of awareness of compassion throughout your day. Um, and then there is the formal dedicated period, you know? Um, so there are schools, of course, uh, TM or Transcendental Meditation, maybe most well-known amongst them, which say 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the mm-hmm. evening. Um, and, you know, that's a different approach. It's a different school of meditation, so I can't really speak to um, the basis of, of why they say that. Uh, in terms of the practices that I teach, um, I mean, I think it's great if you can do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. Um what I've heard from neuroscientists, uh, well, the first neuroscientist um, I talked about this with was, was a few years ago. And um, they're using, they were testing, they were researching the methods that I teach. And so, you know, it was, it was very familiar. And um, this one neuroscientist who's very uh, prominent in the field said to me what they had found was that seven to nine minutes a day would actually change your brain. Wow. And, you know, again, I'm not a scientist, but, they, you know, they talk about yep. all these changes in your brain. But the chances are if it's short, you're going to continue to do it and, yeah. and make it a part. It's integrated into your life. That's right. And so, and the everydayness of it seems more important mm-hmm. than the actual length of time. So I said to him, you know, like, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum, you know. Like, <laughs> and it's also there's something very American about it. Like, what's the least amount of time I can put into this thing, you know? Right. Get the results I want. But nonetheless, I found that fascinating. Yeah. You know, he wasn't saying like eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, or you get nothing. And these are measurable changes in terms mm-hmm. of fMRIs and other things, you know. So, um, so then recently I was on a Zoom panel. Uh, and there was another friend of mine, a neuroscientist, a woman named Amishi Ja, who's a lab at the University of Miami. And I was quoting this other neuroscientist, um, and who's you know very prominent in the field. And and I said seven to nine minutes a day, but I could see her face on the screen, <laughs> and she didn't look that happy. So I said, "Okay, Amishi, what are you thinking?" 
And she said, well, my lab found 12 minutes a day. <laughs> so I mean, clearly nobody actually knows, you know, like sure. the, the precise unit. Um, but again, you know, she wasn't saying, oh, it's got to be 18 hours, you know, mm-hmm. or, or you get nothing. So people are talking about a relatively small investment in time. Yes. But, but it needs to be real. Yeah. 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 It keeps it real. One of the things that you share in, in your book of happiness, and by the way, I don't think we, we gave you the recognition that you are a New York Times bestseller and you're on book 11. So there's a lot of resources for our listeners after this, should you want to contact or, or connect with um, Sharon's information. But one of the things that you shared, making it real, is the different types, which you started to talk about the tea, medita- sip, sipping tea, but you also shared in your book, which I thought was interesting, phrase meditation of saying loving things to yourself, which if, I'll let you talk about that, and walking meditation. Um, uh, there, there are so many different ways to just be mindful or to, to be in the present, if you could, wouldn't mind talking about those. Yeah, there are many different ways in terms of, I mean, you know, there, there are all kinds of ways in which we maybe start with the breath. And this is in sitting, you know, for example, um, we start with the breath, but then we pay attention to the sensations that appear and the emotions that appear and um, developing a different relationship with whatever's happening. So, um Basically, we're trying to bring our attention closer to what is actually happening without being confused by so many add-ons. You know, like commonly, for example, if we feel um, discomfort in our bodies or emotional pain, heartache, disappointment, right away we start thinking, what's going to feel like tomorrow? What's mm-hmm. going to feel like next? What's going to feel like next month? So not only do we have the actual discomfort that is happening that we, we need to to face, but we have all this anticipation that we're adding on top of it. And we're like a wreck, you know, because we're trying to deal with a year's worth of, of pain right now. And we can't do that. So we learn, oh, it's not that helpful to project into the future that way. Um, I'm more empowered by dealing with what actually is. Or maybe there's an emotional state. Our whole lives we've been taught, well, don't go there. You know, that's wrong. And that's the very emotional state that's coming up. And so there's something in us that wants to just push it away or deny it. And so what happens when we're there with it? Um, So mindfulness can be described as a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the present moment is not distorted by bias, by old habit, and so on. So those old habits will arise, but we see them, we let go of them, and then we're just with what is. So uh, we ultimately want to be aware of everything, you know, not just the breath, although that's the foundation, but mm-hmm. whatever becomes predominant in our experience. And we can do that sitting, we can do that walking, we can do that, um, you know, whatever. And that's what we kind of bring into life when we feel the warmth of the teacup and mm-hmm. uh, we smell the tea and we taste the tea. There are other forms of meditation, which um, I, and loving kindness would be included under. I mean, they're very connected. You know, they mm-hmm. really support one another, just stylistically different. 
where um, I call it the stretch, um, where we realize like maybe I'm used to paying attention in a certain way. It's almost like a rut at this point. And I'm going to experiment. I'm going to see what it's like to pay attention in this other way or to this other thing. Um, so it takes some intentionality, not force, but it's like a, a willingness to step into this other terrain. I should also say that other terrain is true. It's not phony, but it may get very little airtime. So a perfect example of that kind of practice would be a gratitude reflection mm-hmm. where uh, many researchers, many psychologists say that one of the most healing things any of us can do is keep a gratitude journal where every night we write down three things we're grateful for from the day. And um, well, somebody said to me once, uh, I think I'm going to try to find one thing a month. And I said, <laughs> I don't think that's enough. You know, like <laughs> right. usually they say three a day. Um, and they don't have to be magnificent or grandiose. They could be seemingly small, but we don't usually pay attention to that. And some people don't want to, you know, they think, well, that's like so weird and I'll get too compliant. And it's like being given crumbs in life and, and being told to be grateful for it. But actually it it's a source of strength. You know, we don't feel so depleted. We don't feel so ineffective or like we have no inner resource. It actually buoys us up, um, which may mean, enough energy to challenge, you know, an environmental adversity or whatever. Um, but it it's not weakening. Um, it's actually strengthening. So when I teach it, I also say that this doesn't come naturally to me. Mm-hmm. You know, my personal conditioning, my family conditioning, my cultural conditioning yes. is such. I think that's critical. Yeah. That I'm Thank so you. much like more likely to come Thank to the you. end of the day and think what I can complain about. You know, like I didn't show up in the way I had hoped to and someone else disappointed me. And, you know, in, in recently prior times when I was always traveling, there's always an airline, you know, <laughs> and that's just where my mind would go. So it takes intentionality to say, well, that may all be true. I'm not denying that. But what else happened today? Mm-hmm. You know, what do I usually neglect or, or ignore? And that brings in the other side. One of the big ahas I got from your work was regarding mindfulness and and the stories, which I guess I'm attached to that because I found that's where I was living and I'm trying to get out of that. But a lot of what I worry about in the past, things that may have upset me, I create more story to it than was real. And then when I worry about the future, what's going to happen next, again, I'm creating that none of it was actually real. <laughs> so thank you for, for sharing how to be in the present more. So that was very helpful for me. I like the techniques of, you know, one of the things, I keep thinking of paradigm shifting here, Sharon, as I hear you share, you know, your experiences and your teachings. I think that as Westerners or I'm, that because of where I'm at, you know, I think that we place this assumption that, you know, this has to be a certain way. Like, if you're going to do meditation, you have to do it a certain way. And what I really like what you're sharing and teaching is the practicality of it. And you can still achieve the results 
by having these practical moments and having these small achievable moments, which I really like. And just that... that Authenticity. And authenticity, right. Yeah. So even with the gratitude journal, I mean, just going over that, going over the, the you know, 7 to 9, 7 to 12 minutes or whatever. I mean, it's giving people a, a, another framework to reflect out of that, that can then say, you know, that I can do. Like, I can, I can find the 7. You know, maybe I can... I often used to say this um, when I, you know, we always talk about how, oh, we don't have enough time to do whatever, you know, whatever that may is. And at one point, I, I was looking at what can I remove out of my daily activities that isn't benefiting me. Uh-huh. And so one of the things that I did was I looked at television and I said, how much time are you spending with television? And although I felt I was spending not a lot of time, it was even two hours, which was like, oh, I'm going to catch the news in the morning. I might catch a half an hour here and maybe half. But it was two hours. And so I eliminated that. And I came up with two more hours that I could spend doing these healthy self type of things. Um, and so I think this is really helping people get real um, and and have some practicality to the things that you're teaching because it's going to have a great benefit not only for self, but as you talk about in your most current book. That's um, what I'd like to get to. Yeah, where you talk about how that effect can be beyond the self. Right. Um, which I, which I, I'd like to really kind of go into because in your, in your um, current book, uh, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. And what I actually think is fascinating about that, Sharon, is that from my understanding, you wrote that book prior to the pandemic. I did. <laughs> That's amazing. But yet everything, amazing. but in that book, are, are, it, it feels like a lot of things that are happening to people now with the isolation, the loneliness, um, that there are things that you address in that book that can be very, in your book, that can be very helpful. Uh, so I find that I, the, the timing of that is very – the synchronicity is just very clear to, to, to me. Um, so one thing I'd like to, to ask you about is the Meta Minute. Can you share with what that is for our listeners? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that about the book. I did – I turned it in last – I think it's December or January, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Um, and it was supposed to come out yeah. in June, and then it got postponed until September and and my great fear was that I wrote a totally irrelevant book you know? <laughs> like, uh, because everything was so extreme. Yeah. Um, and um, the only part of the book that is newer uh, is the preface because um, I turned in the, the manuscript and uh, a friend of mine was reading it in order to excerpt it for something. And he said to me, while he liked the book and there are chapters in there like moving from anger to courage or mm-hmm. uh, grief to resilience mm-hmm. and remembering to take in the joy that feel very pertinent. Now he said, he kept reading the book and seeing the examples and thinking that's what made you anxious. Wait till you see what's coming. <laughs> so at that point I went to the publisher uh, who you know delayed the book and, I said, would it be okay if I wrote a new preface that actually kind of tried to bring in the uh, very current, of course, time always goes on and more things happen, but, you know, uh, this was just post pandemic. And so, um, and they said, yes. And so that was a really fascinating process because my 
overarching question to myself was what's still true, mm-hmm. you know, in such enormous disruption and uncertainty and anxiety and grief and what's still true? Like, what am I relying on? What can one rely on mm-hmm. uh, that is not actually also changing in that radical way? Um and it brought me very close to the things I rely on in my meditation practice and the tools and the sense of centering and um, the power of love and things like that. So that was actually a really important process for me as well in doing it. And then the, the book came into the world and I was like, oh. I hope. You know? yeah. oh. <laughs> and I guess what Michael was saying, that sense of um, – Self-love, how does that expand into a sense of community? Well, one of the things that I um, did in the creation of this book was uh, interviews with a tremendous number of activists. I should also say that, um, going back a bit, uh, my earliest teaching, our earliest teaching in this country and around the world was really just open retreats, you know, whoever Mm -hmm. wanted to come would show up. and then. Uh, that moved into classes or workshops or, you know, as well as retreats. And it was always an open experience and it still often is. Uh, But in more recent years, I also began working more uh, specifically with people we call caregivers, which I always think has got to be a better word, but that's Mm -hmm. the word. People who either personally or professionally are dealing with someone else's suffering or the Mm -hmm. system you know, like a seemingly intractable system of suffering. And um, I've spent a lot more time bringing tools of, say, meditation to that population. And that's a really powerful population for me. I always feel like people are so unheralded, uncelebrated in that role, and they're holding up the entire society, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I was part of a four-year program uh, through this place called the Garrison Institute for Domestic Violence Shelter Workers, people who worked in frontline jobs in the shelters, and then international humanitarian aid workers, people going to the refugee camps, say, in Syria, and more recently, um, ambulance drivers, medical personnel, uh, physicians, nurses. And uh, it's such a powerful place, being on the front lines of suffering, trying to serve, to make a change, and often burning out, not from a lack of empathy, usually commonly from a lack of some kind of balance, like Mm -hmm. compassion for oneself as well as for others, or being able to appreciate a sense of limits without feeling you failed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there's a kind of balance that, that comes in there. So, you know, as time went on and I was doing more and more work with these people, I thought, um, who do they remind me of? And I thought, oh, they remind me of activists, you know, like (laughs) it's kind of the same syndrome, you know, like uh, tremendous caring and effort and work. And, uh, you know, those aren't the people who suffer as we see so many people suffering from a lack of empathy, which also, you know, it's so significant and impactful, but these people have plenty of empathy, but they're burning out you know, for other reasons. And so I started doing more work with activists, um, just seeing, you know, can these tools uh, be of some service? You who are serving the, all of us, you know, mm-hmm. 
And um, part of what I saw then, you know, back to the book, I, I was interviewing a lot of people for the book who are trying to make a difference in this world in some way or another. And uh, there was this hidden theme I felt that um, maybe was exemplified most in, in this uh, one woman who's one of the leaders of the striking fast food movement in New York City, striking for a $15 an hour minimum wage and the right to unionize. And I had met many people uh, like that. And many of them told me, you know, even my family told me, like, don't make waves, don't stand up. You know, mm -hmm. you get so little and you work so hard anyway and you're going to have nothing, you know. like. But there was this moment, as, as this woman Chantel described, where it's like an inner sense of like, I'm worth more than that, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, there's a sense of one's innate dignity or innate worth. And that propels people to stand up. And uh, you can see the direct link because it's not only for herself. She would say, look at these younger people coming in and they're going to have nothing to, you know, like it's just not right. Mm -hmm. And so that care for oneself in the most authentic way leads to a kind of care for others, which leads to action. Wow. That's beautiful. That's powerful. It is. Um, so I'm going to read, we got lost on the meta minute. So can you go? Oh, yeah, sorry. No, 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 it's fine. Uh, I, it, was, I just, it, was, it was a good path. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I am, I, I am curious. So, yes. yeah. So um, I was in an airport somewhere a few years ago and uh, somebody uh, wrote a tweet for me. So I was on my phone on Twitter for change and uh, <laughs> and it said something like uh, couldn't meta M-E-T-T-A mm -hmm. means loving kindness um, oh. and, and Pali, which is like a sister language to Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, she wrote to me and she said, couldn't we, uh, couldn't Sharon Salzberg have a, a minute of meta for the kids in cages at the border? Oh. And I thought, oh, you know, that's a really powerful idea. And so I wrote back and I said, I'm in an airport, <laughs> you know, like I'm going home for, I don't know, three days and I'll see if I can write a script and record it. And then, uh, you know, we can play it. And so I did, I wrote a script um, of encouraging people to offer a minute of loving kindness to these kids. Mm. And um, I was at another airport like four days later when it was on. So I did my minute in the airport. And um, it was really interesting because the response was very varied. You know, many people wrote and said, thank you. Because there's such a feeling of helplessness also. Mm -hmm. And if we can do something energetically like this offering of, of you know, maybe happy, maybe safe, uh, uh, as a kind of energetic gift giving, it also links us up, you know, and then we don't feel so helpless and then we might see what action we might take. But, you know, so many people wrote in appreciation and several people wrote in criticism, like saying, well, you're as bad as the people who just offer, you know, thoughts and prayers. You're not doing anything. Why aren't you, you know, 
taking action? Why aren't you donating? Why aren't you, you know? Mm-hmm. And all I could write back would be, uh, it's hard for me to look at this level of pain. And it's not just me, but it's hard mm-hmm. to look at this level of pain. And every time I can connect to something bigger, it helps me stay there mm-hmm. rather than look away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not confusing meditation with action, you know, but let's take a look at how we do take action, how we don't just stay feeling helpless and uh, kind of overcome or depleted. And so um, I think that kind of energetic connection and the ability to be with a really painful, difficult situation to look at is what allows a lot of people to take action. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, that was just the stand that I took. And putting a spotlight on it, I think gaining awareness for people yeah. is the number one step, the first step that people would take to taking action. You have to be aware of what's going on, that there are cages to begin with. So one thing that I want to ask, which is kind of maybe digressing or, or whatever, but we love Krishna Das as well, and we know that you two are dear, dear friends and work so well together. He sings the sacred syllables, and, and then you take us into a sacred place through your meditation um, practice. Could you tell us a little bit about how you two met, the, the story of the two of you? Because I think it's a beautiful relationship, partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um well, you know, I went to India uh, in, I guess, September, the beginning of the semester in 1970. And uh, I went, as many people did, virtually everybody in those days, overland, you know, which means I flew to London. I took the Orient Express train to, you know, Istanbul and went overland buses and trains and so on uh, all the way to India. And then I kind of wandered around India a bit. Um, looking for just what I had described, you know, very practical, direct how-to experience of meditation. And I, I couldn't find it right away. It just, you know, didn't happen that that readily. And, and finally, somebody uh, directed me to, somebody said um, there was going to be an international yoga conference happening in New Delhi. And this is still, you know, this is, uh, maybe December of 1970. Uh, so I thought, oh, maybe I'll go there and I'll find a teacher. So I went there, and that was like a completely dismal experience where <laughs> the low point was where these yogis and swamis were up on the stage grabbing the mic and trying to be the first to speak. You know, oh, it was like awful. So I thought, well, this is hopeless. But <laughs> at that conference, Dan Goldman, who, you know, Decades later, wrote Emotional Intelligence. Yes, yes. For some reason, he was giving a talk at that conference. I have no idea why. At the time, he was a graduate student uh, at Harvard studying meditation in the psychology department. And at the end of his talk, he said, uh, in a few days, he was leaving for this town called Bodhgaya. Um, and he was going to do an intensive 10-day meditation retreat, which was described as, um, you know, uh, being really practical and direct and 
and kind of the how to. And I thought, oh, that's it. That's, that's what I want. And it was it. So a number of people, uh, basically followed Danny to Bodhgaya and, uh, January 7th, I started my first intensive 10 day retreat. And so Krishadas was there as a student, uh, then known as Jeffrey. Um, Ramdas was there, known as Ramdas as a student. Uh, so I met Joseph Goldstein and, uh, Danny, of course, was there. And, and, uh, many of my still really closest friends were at my first <laughs> retreat. And so we've known each other, you know, lo these many years. This is, you know, the years go by. Every time I'm introduced, I think, really? You know, like. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. So I, I think um, we're getting close to um, finishing up. And I just wanted, and I know that you've offered to uh, lead us through about a, a five minute or so meditation, which I think is really exciting and, and looking forward to that. Before we do that, though, a couple of things I want to just um, draw some attention to um, that, that I got out of your book that I thought um, first of all, your your book again um, is the real change mindfulness to heal ourselves in the world, and I would recommend our listeners to 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 get that book because not only is it timely, but I think then all the challenges that we're having right now with this sense of isolation and fear and lack of compassion that you will find com- some comfort in this book, and as well as getting some helpful techniques i just think it's it's very timely and worthwhile and in that book um you share that your mother often shared a passage that said tranquility itself is not freedom from the storm but peace within it um i think that was beautiful that just struck struck me when i read that and i know that your goal is to have the book serve to connect us that we are not defined by isolation fear but rather by wisdom generosity and love um, and I think that's uh, absolutely beautiful. So um, I want to thank you for that, Sharon. Also, for our listeners, 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock today, um, Sharon is going to have a live stream meditation. It's called Find a Moment of Calm. You can find out more information about that at SharonSaltzberg.com forward slash events. So if you'd like to have a little bit more of, of Sharon today, you can tune into that. So with that, um, Sharon, I'll turn it over to you for our five-minute meditation, and then uh, that'll take us out for the for the day. Sure, thank you. Um, why don't we go back to that kind of foundational exercise, beginning with the breath um, that I described, and we can do a little loving kindness toward toward the end of that. So um, you can sit comfortably. Close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. See if you can settle your attention in your body and notice where the breath is strongest for you or clearest for you. This is just the normal, natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different. Just however it's appearing. You find that place. Maybe it's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. Bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath without 
concern for what's already gone by without leaning forward for even the very next breath, just this one. And if you find your attention wandering, you get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. We say the most important moment in the whole process is the next moment after you've been gone, after you've been lost, where we have the chance to be really different. So instead of blaming yourself or calling yourself a failure, see if you can let go gently. And just begin again. Bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. We let go and we begin again. And now for a few minutes, rather than the feeling of the breath being that central object, let's use the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are gift-giving, they're offering. It's like a blessing, first to ourselves and then to others. Common phrases are, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy. Live with ease. Live with ease means that the things of day-to-day life, like livelihood and family, may not be such a struggle. May I live with ease. May I be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. Just repeat these phrases over and over again. You don't have to try to force a special feeling or emotion. See if you can gather your attention behind one phrase at a time. And the skill set's just the same. Your mind will wander. It'll go all over the place. That's okay. See if you can let go and come back. In this case, come back to the phrases. And then someone that you care about, someone who's helped you, 
someone who when you think of them, you smile, could be an adult, could be a child, could be a pet, who makes you smile? If there's someone, you can bring them here. Get an image of them, say their name to yourself, get a feeling for their presence, and offer these phrases of loving kindness to them. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And then all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown, may all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze and we'll end the meditation. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Sharon. Jamie, let's not do the outro. We'll just leave it. Uh, we'll just, um, Sharon, thank you so much again. We deeply appreciate you and we deeply appreciate your work. And thank you for that wonderful meditation. What a beautiful way to to end the show today so well thank you really it was a joy and an honor thank you and you made it very easy for me which is an extremely important thing (laughs) (laughs) thanks again safe travels and everything that you do Sharon listeners thank you so much for tuning in we deeply appreciate you and we'll see you next time bye for now